Now, this past Sunday, October 1st, 2023, was the 70th anniversary of the U.S. Republic of Korea Mutual Defense Treaty. Now, this treaty, in many ways, uh, serves as not only the bedrock of the U.S.-South Korea alliance, but also uh, South Korea's overall security, right? Well, the treaty allows for either side to come to the aid of the other if attacked by a third country, and it also allows for U.S. troops to be permanently uh, stationed on the South Korean territory. Now, as the treaty was concluded only two months after the armistice agreement to halt uh, the Korean War was signed, it's obviously closely uh, linked with the Korean War. But now, during the Cold War and now in the post-Cold War era, the treaty had has a regional and global implications. Today, we're going to be talking about the history behind the signing of the Mutual Defense Treaty, as well as some other broader issues regarding the U.S.-ROK alliance that are related to this treaty. And joining us, of course, for the latest in Made in Korea is Professor Benjamin Engel. Professor, thank you very much for joining us once again. Glad to be here. Again, uh, this is a great deal. Uh, I guess this treaty has uh, quite a bit of significance uh, in the, the history of South Korea. And of course, recently, uh, South Korea even had the, the massive military parade and uh, ceremonies to mark this, uh, you know, the, you know, this mutual defense treaty and the alliance that we're seeing uh, between the two countries. So given the timing of the treaty, though, obviously that this treaty is related to the end of the Korean War. But can you explain to us the background of the Mutual Defense Treaty and why both the U.S. and South Korea decide to conclude the agreement? So what I find most interesting about this treaty is that uh, its initial conclusion really flies in the uh, face of the traditional cliches of an ironclad alliance yeah. or the alliance as the linchpin of peace and security we in East Asia. Um, the Mutual Defense Treaty was actually born of extreme distrust uh, between the two governments. Oh, really? Uh, as the armistice talks to end uh, the Korean War were proceeding, uh, Sun Man Ri, the president of South Korea, uh, continued to insist that he wanted to keep fighting uh, to unite the Korean Peninsula under his rule. The United States, on the other hand, had grown weary of fighting and wanted to end the war as quickly as possible. Um, the details of this story are quite fascinating, and I encourage listeners to read about it further, but I'll try to give you the Cliff Notes version here. Uh, so the, the U.S. was considering in the spring of 1953, as the war drew to a close, orchestrating a coup against Sungman Ri uh, to ensure that South Korea would abide by the armistice agreement because Sungman Ri was insisting that uh, he wanted to keep fighting and he was threatening to withdraw South Korean troops out of the UN command, uh, which of course the UN was in uh, the United States was in charge of to coordinate all the multinational forces uh, response to the North Korean invasion. So uh, with Sungman Ri threatening to withdraw his uh, South Korean forces and continuing the war, the South Korea or the United States uh, thought about actually removing him and replacing uh, him as a president of South Korea. Um, Ri, for his part, was uh, not only wanting to continue the fighting, but he was also demanding that uh, the United States conclude uh, this mutual defense treaty to mm -hmm. ensure South Korea's uh, future security. So the United States really had a choice. Was it going to remove Lee Seung-man from power and avoid signing this mutual defense treaty? Or was it going to give in to Seung-man Ri's brinkmanship uh, 
diplomacy, this threat to continue fighting and uh, give in to him and sign the Mutual Defense Treaty. Um, But if you look at U.S. documents, there were actually a lot of U.S. officials who didn't think at the time that South Korea was that strategically important. Uh, Many U.S. officials wanted to maintain a defense perimeter in the Cold War that uh, linked Japan, Okinawa, and the Philippines and leave South Korea outside of this uh, defense perimeter. Of course, before the Korean War, we had the famous Atchison Line Declaration that many people think in a way contributed to the outbreak. Uh, North Korea's invasion. Um, so the U.S., uh, it had these two options, remove Lee Sing-man from power or uh, give in to his demands for a mutual defense treaty. To make a long story short, uh, the United States eventually decided to sign the mutual defense treaty. And in late June 1953, about a month before the armistice agreement was signed, um, the United States uh, makes this decision. And uh, the mutual defense treaty is signed a couple months after the armistice agreement is signed in July 1950. First and foremost, uh, haven't heard cliff notes in a really long time until uh, since uh, high school, my high school days when the cliff note was very useful for my uh, uh, exams. But uh, number two, did not know that Lee Seung-man actually wanted to continue on with the war. But what was he thinking, though? I mean, if U.S., which, I mean, had a great deal of soldiers that were helping out, Uh, the South Korean troops during the the, the Korean War. How was he able to continue on with the war without the presence of the U.S. troops? Was that something that he thought of? Did he think that they were going to continue to fight without the U.S. troops was what it was? So on the one hand, uh, he was also insisting that China remove its forces uh, from Korea so it would come back to a South versus North Korea only type of battle. But of course, both sides were very depleted in terms of their forces. So... um, Uh, But I think most people see this demand or this suggestion by Seungman Ri that he was going to continue the fighting more as a bluff uh, to force the United States to give in to his demands for a mutual mutual security treaty uh, because... He didn't really have anything to play against the U.S. Uh, yeah. This was his only card. And uh, uh, one of the details I skipped over to make this bluff seem more real, uh, Seungman Ri, uh, during the spring of 1953, uh, unilaterally uh, releases several thousand North Korean uh, prisoners of war uh, because he wanted to show the United States that he was capable of making these decisions on his own if the United States didn't listen to him, that he was going to try to scuttle the armistice talks so that they would go keep uh, going on. Um, so this was a very, uh, yeah, Lee Seung-man was trying to play the United States to uh, maximize his gains or benefits from the relationship with the United w- States. Was he power tripping? Because from what I understand, uh, Lee Seung-man was sort of the U.S.'s pick, right, as as the leader for South Korea at the time. And he was very much pro-United uh, States, but now he's going very much against what the, the U.S. has wanted. And it, it does make more sense that maybe this was a bluff because it makes no sense to be like, all right, everyone, this is no longer a rumble. Everyone out, it's just going to be one-on-one, us versus them. Yeah, that's not going to happen. It doesn't it really, wars don't happen like that. But uh, despite a lot of anger at uh, Lee Seung-man, obviously, the U.S. must have seen this agreement as being in its interest to make such a huge commitment to South Korea. But what does the U.S. actually gain from the Mutual Defense Treaty? Right. So at the time of the agreement, uh, when it was concluded, it might have seemed like a a burden for the United States to commit itself to the perpetual defense of Korea. The country was very poor before the war and was now utterly devastated uh, by the Korean War. So the U.S. was going to have to spend billions of dollars uh, in aid to rebuild the Korean military and economy. Uh, The country was led by someone that they didn't trust um, and consider removing uh, via a coup. 
But perhaps a bigger strategic picture offered the United States a better rationale uh, for sticking by South Korea's side. Uh, The United States, by committing to the defense of South Korea, could show that it was committed to the defense of allies and partners, uh, which would make the Soviet Union and China reconsider any future military action. The U.S. had always seen Japan as the key to East Asia uh, policy during the Cold War, and by maintaining a presence in Korea, the U.S. could also better ensure the security of Japan. And certainly, if we look at the alliance through contemporary eyes, there is a benefit to the U.S. in terms of keeping troops in uh, South Korea. This deters the outbreak of any uh, new wars and also provides the U.S. with the ability to react very quickly in any contingency. But uh, if we look at documents from 1953, before the Mutual Defense Treaty was signed, uh, the United States also saw South Korea as an opportunity in the ideological battle Mm -hmm. of the Cold War. So when deciding to conclude the Mutual Defense Treaty with South Korea, the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff argued in a policy paper that the U.S. should make an effort to, uh, quote, establish the Republic Korea as an example, economically and politically, of the advantages of association with the free world and to, quote, create dissatisfaction and unrest in North Korea so that uh, unification would come. So looking back at this statement 70 years later, right, it's a fairly incredible how well things played out yeah. from this standpoint. It took a long time, but South Korea blossomed into an economic powerhouse and a vibrant democracy. Yeah, and I find it interesting that initially the U.S. actually didn't see South Korea as a very strategically important region. But now, obviously, you look at the geopolitical tensions and all the things that evolve into South Korea does become uh, one of the more important uh, regions for uh, the U.S. to have its presence on strategically. But how about on the South Korean side? I mean, you have the obvious, right? The, the treaty contributed greatly to security by having the might of the U.S. military behind South Korea. And it probably is one of the ma- major reasons why there probably wasn't a second world, uh, sorry, second Korean war per se. But um, what other benefits has South Korea garnered from this treaty with the United States? Right. So, of course, the presence of U.S. troops in South Korea has deterred uh, a North Korea North Korea from conducting a second, in, second invasion for 70 years now. Uh, if we survey the history of the Cold War, we can see instances where Kim Il-sung was contemplating uh, another uh, invasion. And yeah. the Soviet Union and China, of course, rebuffed uh, these uh, requests because they knew they would have to fight the United States again. But I think, uh, as I mentioned before, once the United States committed itself to the Mutual Defense Treaty, it was actually committing itself to much more. And it wasn't just enough to secure South Korea. Uh, The U.S. wanted to see South Korea become a success. And this was a great thing uh, for South Korea Um, to ensure that the South Korea won this ideological battle. The United States poured in billions of dollars in aid. And so when South Korea transitioned to an export-oriented economic growth paradigm, the U.S. also opened its markets uh, to South Korean goods, ensuring that uh, South Korea became or experienced that uh, miracle on the Han. Um, And also a great deal of technological capabilities were transferred from the U.S. to South Korea to facilitate its economic growth. And I think one good example here is South Korea's arms industry. So these uh, in the last couple of years, we've seen South Korea conclude uh, a number of large scale uh, weapons sales to Poland or uh, states in the Middle East. Um, In the 1970s, uh, South Korea was actually able to uh, reverse engineer its first surface-to-surface missiles based on uh, U.S. technology. And then also in the 1970s, South Korea secured a contract to be begin producing M16 rifles in South Korea. So these were great opportunities for the South Korean uh, defense industry and engineers to begin to learn how to make these sophisticated weapons. And then, you know, decades later, uh, South Korea turns into this um, 
arms-producing nation that's uh, supplying much of the rest of the world. So, I mean, there are, I guess, a lot of benefits on both sides from the mutual defense uh, treaty, but I guess nothing is perfect, unfortunately, right? I mean, the military alliance has also been somewhat controversial at times, uh, though not too much Recently, we've seen waves of anti-American sentiment in, in South Korea, uh, despite the existence of this treaty. How has the treaty caused a friction in the relationship? I think the old adage popularized by Spider-Man uh, kind of uh, <laughs> is important here. So Uncle Ben tells Peter Parker, right? With great Spider-Man, power. Exactly. With great power comes great responsibility. And by this, I mean the U.S. decided to take on the responsibility of securing South Korea um, but it also acquired great power to guide the development of the country. And I think many Koreans believe that at times the U.S. did not wield that power very responsibly. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the best example of this is when uh, Park Jung-hee and Chun Doo-hwan carried out their coups to take power. And uh, another good or probably bad example of this is uh, the repression of the Gwangju democracy movement in May 1980. Many Koreans believe that the United States had the responsibility to prevent the slaughter of hundreds of democracy protesters at that time because uh, through the Mutual Defense Treaty, the United States retained its operational control over much of the South Korean armed forces. Of course, Seungman Ri signed over operational control of the South Korean military to the United States during the Korean War, and the United States has maintained that Uh, control uh, up until the present, at least in terms of wartime operational control. Uh, So when uh, the military became involved in politics in South Korea during the 1960s, 70s and 80s, the United States in a way was responsible for this. Um, And then another problem with um, the Mutual Defense Treaty and uh, anti-Americanism is uh, the SOFA agreement or the so-called Status of Forces Agreement. Mm -hmm. Uh, This agreement was a concluded uh, several years after the mutual treaty mutual defense treaty but what this treaty does is govern the um and one of the important parts of this treaty is that it governs who will be able to hold uh, criminal jurisdiction over u.s soldiers if they commit a crime Hmm. in south korea and one of the uh, most crucial instances uh, where this became an issue was the yangju highway incident in june 2002 um the tank the tank uh, a large u.s military vehicle was driving down a very narrow road and uh unfortunately struck two female south korean middle school students uh killing them and uh because the united states government insisted that the two soldiers driving the vehicle were on duty they were not turned over to South Korean courts uh, for criminal prosecution. They were acquitted uh, by U.S. military courts, and this caused an outburst of anti-American sentiment, a lot of protests around U.S. military bases in South Korea. Uh, So from time to time, although we haven't seen it too much lately, um, the presence of U.S. forces in South Korea has caused problems in the relationship. I have to say 2002, in in my memory, and I was a a high school uh, sophomore at the time, uh, I remember 2002 very clearly because of the 2002 World Cup. Uh, but I remember there was a whole lot of anti-American sentiment amongst the Koreans at the time. Uh, it was the tank incident with the two young uh, students was a big one, and where uh, you know Koreans were insisting that this was you know done purposely by these soldiers, and they, they had evidences of this, but they were found not guilty. And then I know this sounds kind of silly, but there was the 2002 Salt Lake City uh, Winter Games where Apollo Anton Ono had done the, oh, 
you know, and uh, you know, Kim Dong Sung, who was uh, the South Korean short uh, short track star at the time, was penalized, and there was a big thing on that. And then the 2002 World Cup happened, and then An Jong Hwan scoring a goal against the United States during the Apollo Anton Ono uh, celebration. There was a lot of anti-American sentiment in 2002. I remember, but yeah, I do remember the uh, the tank incident being a very uh, controversial issue, but. Recently, though, uh, Professor Engel, South Korea has begun to participate in NATO or the North American Treaty Organization meetings uh, with other Asia-Pacific states, including like Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. But if you look at the Mutual Defense Treaty and compare with the NATO situation in Europe, I, we, we find some important differences, right? How does the bilateral alliance between the U.S. and South Korea based on the Mutual Defense Treaty compare to, let's say, the U.S. and the NATO relationship? Right. So in East Asia, there is no NATO-like collective security organization. Um, instead, U.S. allies are uh, cobbled together in what scholars call a hub-and-spokes alliance system. So you can kind of imagine a bicycle wheel. At the center of the bicycle wheel is a hub or hubcap, mm -hmm. and that is the United States. And then leading out from the hubcap are uh, lines, right, or spokes. Um, connected to various U.S. allies and partners. However, different from a bicycle wheel, on the outside of these spokes, there is no wheel connecting uh, the individual parts. So right. there's just uh, one partner connected to the U.S. and then through the U.S. connected to another partner. Uh, so if we look at, for example, the South Korea... U.S.-Japan triangle, there's a line between South Korea and the, and the U.S. and between Japan and the U.S., but no line between South Korea and Japan. Um, so this makes it a very different relationship than NATO. Uh, if you look at the NATO treaty, um, it states something to the effect that an attack against one is an attack against all. Right. Uh, so whenever any NATO ally is attacked, uh, then all other nations are uh, obliged to give some sort of response. It doesn't have to be military. It could be some sort of material aid, right. uh, but they have to respond. But if, for example, Japan was attacked by China, South Korea would not be in any way obliged to uh, become involved in that at all. Um, However, there are some other treaties. Uh, for example, Japan is connected to the U uh, United Nations Command in a way that would uh, allow the United Nations, or more specifically the United States, to use its bases in Japan uh, to assist Korea. Uh, but this is a very different setup from what NATO has in Europe. So lately, with now South Korea and Japan having improved relations and uh, since the UN administration began and also since the UN administration, we're seeing even better, closer uh, relations with uh, South Korea and the United States as well. And there's been, uh, for instance, you know, countries like China uh, kind of accusing the U.S. of creating an Asian NATO, uh, I think is what they said. But I, this would be very different. I mean, we talked about the differences between this alliance here and, of course, what NATO would be. But why don't we have a system like NATO in Asia already? You would think that the U.S. has already pushed for that, some uh, an alliance like what they have uh, with uh, NATO in Asia, considering what they call, call threats uh, from uh, China and North Korea. Right. So there have been previous attempts to create something like NATO in Asia. Uh, East Asia or the Asia Pacific. Uh, the first was a proposal by the U.S. shortly after the Korea War ended in the 1950s to create something called the Northeast Asia Treaty Organization, or NITO, so very close to NATO. Right? I remember that, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
However, uh, two issues with Japan resulted in the idea being scrapped. Uh, first, South Korea under Seungman Ri was very reluctant to do anything with Japan because of anti-Japanese sentiment stemming from colonialism. Um, so South Korea-Japan relations weren't normalized until uh, Seungman Ri left power in 1965. Right. Second, Japan's pacifist constitution makes it difficult for Japan to participate in any of these uh, security uh, organizations. Um, and... Uh, Park Chung-hee also suggested making something called the Asia-Pacific Area Treaty Organization in the late 1960s, but that didn't take off. And I think the main reason we still don't see a NATO-like body in uh, Northeast Asia in particular, right? We have ASEAN uh, in um, Southeast Asia, right. and there was something called CETO uh, in the, during the Cold War. But the reason nothing has materialized in Northeast Asia between South Korea, Japan, maybe Taiwan, is uh, mainly due to... Japan and its history issues. And of course, uh, those are the two that I mentioned before, South Korea-Japan relations and their uh, debates stemming from colonialism. And then because of Japan's militarism and uh, it's that led to World War II, Japan now has that pacifist constitution right. that uh, inhibits it from per, per, uh, participating in a lot of these security apparatuses. You know, we talked about this uh, long history of the the mutual defense treaty and how it could have happened, it, it could have not happened in the first place. But I mean, we've come a long way. Seventieth anniversary of uh, the U.S. South Korea alliance, the signing of the mutual defense treaty, and we've talked about how there were some bumps on the road. But uh, how is this alliance perceived today in both, I guess, in South Korea and the United States? Yeah, so despite the anti-Americanism that cropped up in South Korea from 1980 to uh, the late 2000s or so, um, the alliance is viewed very positively in both South Korea and the United States today. A recent poll conducted in South Korea from September 4th to 8th this year of 1,238 people aged 18 or older with a margin of error of plus or minus 2.8 percentage points at the 95% confidence level found that 53.7% of Koreans want the alliance uh, to be continuously strengthened. Uh, Perhaps more interesting, this poll found that young people uh, wanted the alliance to be strengthened. 66.1% of people in their 20s and 65.4% of people in their 30s uh, favored uh, strengthening the alliance at uh, even higher level than older Koreans, which yeah, I yeah. found interesting. And then polls in the United States have uh, also found Americans to be uh, uh, on the side of South Korea. A poll conducted by the Chicago Council of Global Affairs of 3,106 adults eight, aged 18 or older with a margin of error plus or minus 1.8 percentage points, found that 55% of Americans supported the deployment of troops to South Korea if North Korea invaded South Korea again, and 72% of Americans supported maintaining U.S. military bases in Korea. Uh, So there's a lot of broad support for the alliance on both sides, but at the same time, I think there are a few warning signs that things could sour in the future. Um, One problem may be if uh, Donald Trump returns to the White House. We have (laughs) his claims that he will blow up uh, the U.S.-South Korea alliance if he returns to the White House. So uh, we'll have to keep our eyes on the upcoming U.S. election. And then on the Korea side, um, 
There's been a debate recently, I'm sure you've talked about it, about South Korea building its own nuclear weapons. Right. But the Biden administration in the U.S. has been very against uh, this idea. Um, so uh, after the two sides got together and issued the Washington Declaration, the discussion has kind of uh, subsided. But if North Korea were to conduct another provocation, maybe a nuclear test, and this issue um, reemerged in South Korea, the idea of building South Korean nuclear weapons, that could also have the potential to damage the alliance. Yeah, it's, it's always a very controversial topic with that right South Korea eventually because I don't I think South Korea definitely has the capability to create nuclear weapons I don't think without a doubt it's not it's not a problem with that it's just that they need the permission from the United States but with the United States I mean you know you want to make sure that you're needed I mean that's always a given right that the United States makes needs to make sure that the South Koreans will always need to have uh, US on their sides to deter North Korea but if you look at the long run and I've been for the longest time, I've been saying, I mean, I've been very much against the idea of uh, South Korea having their own nuclear weapons only because, I mean, come on, we've been pushing for not the denuclearization of North Korea only, but denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. But considering the fact that I think what North Korea saw from the uh, the Ukraine invasion from Russia, the only reason why I think, uh, you know, uh, some of the other countries can't go all out against Russia is because Russia has so much nuclear weapons. And so right. now North Korea is seeing that. Is basically saying, dude, we're not ever going to give up our nuclear weapons. We need this uh, for the, the 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 survival of this regime. And so the only other way to deter North Korea would then be South Korea having nuclear weapons. But again, the question of whether or not the U.S. will ever allow that from happening is a completely different topic here. But nevertheless, uh, Professor Engel, thank you very much for a look into the history of the the mutual defense treaty. A lot of quite uh, interesting facts here. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. And uh, looking forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks so much. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.